Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a privilege to get to worship with you guys this morning, especially under these circumstances. I think the last time I preached at Midtown Baptist, I was in my living room, so I kind of felt like the Wizard of Oz. Um, so welcome. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to flip to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to read from chapter 1, the first four verses, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 2 and read the first 21 verses. And if you're able to stand, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. <clears throat> Chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and, when, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there... The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. All flesh is like grass, and all the glory of the field, and all its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I've always loved how Luke begins his gospel. You can really tell he is an excellent historian and that he pays, unlike me, really close attention to detail. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and what we're going to look at this morning is 
how Luke employed all of those details to uh, compile a narrative of the events that took place some 2,000 years ago. Now, our modern culture actually rejects any notion that there are any grand narratives that can tell us what life is all about or what we're here for or what who people are. And while we as Christians don't subscribe to that notion, we can also fall into the trap of uh, creating our own private narratives because we're people and we're humans and we live this side of the fall, we too can create our own false narratives. So because of that, I'd like to invite us to do three things this morning. The first thing is we're going to examine the historical data, the data of the gospel event. Second, we're going to examine our conclusions. And third, we're going to examine our peace. So looking at Luke's account, in Luke chapter 2, he begins this chapter and begins his gospel and the narrative of how Jesus was born by uh, uh, showing us two noteworthy historical figures, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, the governor of Syria. In typical Lucan style, he frames up his narrative by giving us these historical markers, or they're kind of like time stamps to show us precisely when Jesus Christ would be born and was born. And in more specific, he gives us the exact time frame within, Luke, uh, within Caesar Augustus' reign, which is during this decree that he issued during uh, his reign for the entire Roman Empire to be counted for tax purposes. Now, if you know anything about the Caesars of Rome, Caesar Augustus was particularly noteworthy because he was the son of Julius Caesar's nephew. Not only that, he was also the Caesar that was responsible for the building of the Roman uh, Forum, which is still in Rome today, if you've ever been there albeit in rubble. Or if you've seen Gladiator, it's where the Senate met, and it's really close to uh, the Colosseum. Caesar Augustus was also responsible for uh, what's called the Roman peace, or the Pax Romana. He established the Roman peace, which is a, was a general uh, political stability in a rather turbulent time in history. So, he was so noteworthy in his day that the Roman Senate in 27 BC gave him the title Augustus, which means majestic or holy. And again, he's so noteworthy that one of his contemporaries actually wrote an inscription of him, which is now in the British Museum. And if you're ever in London, you can go and see it yourself. And I want to read this inscription, and I'd ask you to pay close attention to how this inscription describes Augustus. It says, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea. And good, uh, excuse me, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons, the productivity of all things is good and at its prime. There are fond hopes for the future and goodwill, which is for all men. 
so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. So in his day, Caesar Caesar Augustus wasn't just a historical noteworthy figure. He was lauded, essentially, as God. He was considered a, a deity amongst the Roman people, and he was considered such because he was considered the Savior who had brought peace and stability and goodwill amongst all men. And Luke doesn't stop there. He gives us the specific time frame with Caesar Augustus' reign, and he also gives us another a governor who is Quirinius, who is the governor of Syria, which was also over Palestine at that time. So if, if you notice, Luke has given us very specific historical timestamp markers so that we know exactly when Jesus would be born. I think it's worth noting that if you've ever stopped and thought about this, do, do we know the name of the prince in Cinderella? Do we know the, the name of Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother? No, we don't know those names because those are fairy tales. And different from fairy tales, Luke gives us precise names and locations and historical facts to to um, tell us what how his gospel came about. I think that's noteworthy. So if you're here this morning and you're anything like me and you're, you're a Christian, and this is, what, the gazillionth time that you've either heard this text preached or read aloud, maybe it's the familiarity of it all, or maybe it's the Charlie Brown Christmas album that starts playing when we hear this, this text, but... It's easy to miss the details. It's easy to miss the historical details of when exactly Jesus was born. It's easy to miss the details of when the pre-existing second person of the Trinity became incarnate. So for that reason, I would actually like us to invite us to do something this morning. I'd, I'd invite us to examine the gospel data, examine the historical evidence the data of the historical gospel. I would like to invite us to examine that data for ourselves because this marks the beginning of the gospel event in which the author of the play, the playwright, so to speak, stepped onto the stage himself, became, showed himself to be the the leading role and stepped into our reality so he could do what we couldn't do. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning or if you happen to be listening online, I'd also like to invite you to do the same thing. I'd like to invite you to examine Luke's account, examine the gospel data because it's noteworthy that Luke spends the first four verses of his gospel explaining that he gathered actual eyewitness testimony to explain his narrative of the gospel events. And if you think about it, that's, pretty, that's a pretty big deal. That's, he, could have, he was writing these, these uh, gospel facts down during the time not only of eyewitness testimonies, but also during the time that other people lived who were there and who, who would have seen all of these things happen, who could have easily debunked Luke's, uh, Luke's account. Who could have said, no, I was there. It didn't happen like that. But they didn't. Not even down to the detail. 
So let's look at some of the other details here. We have this pagan emperor, this Roman emperor, 2,500 miles away from Israel, and he issues this decree, and he gets the entire empire moving. All of these you know, people going to their hometowns to be counted for tax purposes. And amongst all of those people is one little couple, Joseph and Mary. Now, we all know the, the story that they had to essentially get all of their stuff, and I'm assuming schlep all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And that's a big deal because that's a 70-mile journey. And Mary, as you can remember, was pregnant. That must have been uncomfortable. Um, but what's really interesting about that is Mary actually didn't have to come. She wasn't from Bethlehem. Uh, history shows that she didn't own, uh, her family didn't own property there. And she wasn't even actually married yet to Joseph. So what would possess a woman to get on a donkey and go up the craggy, uphill terrain from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Well, some commentators have said that, that Mary actually went because there was so much social pressure, because during that time it was much more, a bigger of a deal for someone to be pregnant and not married than it is today. So the social pressure she was under to even go to the market to get some fish and some vegetables for the day must have been incredible. She must have been so ashamed to even go out in public. So under this social pressure, under this duress, she preferred to go with her fiancé or her betrothed all the way to his hometown rather than stay in Nazareth. So here are the facts. We have the facts here. We have Caesar Augustus, uh, big-time Roman Caesar, issues a decree. Then you have one couple who is pregnant and travels from uh, Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. They get to Bethlehem, they have a baby. Those are the facts. But we're not just concerned with the facts this morning. We're actually concerned with the conclusions that we draw about those facts. Because after all, that's how we live our lives. We look at the, the facts around us as best as we can ascertain them, and then we, we draw conclusions, and then we live based on those, those, those conclusions, or as Luke puts it, we compile a narrative, so to speak, and we live based off of that narrative. Now, if you've lived for any amount of time on this planet, you know that that's not always that easy, because either we fail to actually gather the facts correctly as they are, or we have the facts and we still draw wrong conclusions. If you're a human, you can nod your head, that happens. <laughs> but, and I, I think uh, Sherlock Holmes actually puts it the best. He says, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. And sensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Unfortunately, that's how we live, all of us. Especially in a year like 2020, we have the data, we have the historical gospel data, but we still look up at 2020 
and we can draw some pretty goofy conclusions. And we do that because, let's be honest, this year has been downright disorienting. It's just strange. So what resources are we running to in a year like this to ground us, to, to tether us, so to speak, um, in the midst of all the chaos? Are we running to the historical gospel data to tell us what reality is, or are we rather untethered? In other words, we don't just need to examine the facts. We actually need to examine our conclusions. We need to be aware of the narrative that we are compiling in our head about God, about ourselves, about others. I think it would be helpful to ask in this time, what conclusions am I drawing about God lately? Am I letting the historical data of the gospel dictate what is real and true? Or am I letting my circumstances tell me what's true? I mean, just take Joseph and Mary, for example. Imagine what conclusions they could have drawn in their time. You've got a first century carpenter who probably didn't make a lot of money. And he's getting taxed by an emperor 2,500 miles away. So there goes even more of his income. He has to take his fiance, who is pregnant, and he didn't do it, and drag her all the way to his hometown, and because they're under social pressure. And, I mean, the, the least that God could have done, if you think about it, is just give them a room so that they could have the baby in it. I mean, did he not care? Did he not know what they were going through? Did he not know the stress and the pressure? I mean, it's not like there was a, a hospital off of exit 39 between Nazareth and Bethlehem to have the baby if, if the water broke. I mean, good grief. Well, of course he cared. Of course he cared, and that's, that's the issue. We, sh- we shouldn't look at our circumstances to dictate who God is, and if he cares about us or not. That's, that's folly, especially in 2020. But I think if we're honest, we all struggle with that. We all struggle with looking at our circumstances and drawing conclusions about God, about ourselves, about others, about the nature of life. But I am thankful for examples in history of people who could have done that but didn't. Uh, there's one such guy in history, his name is William Cowper. He lived in the 19th century, and his life was hard. In fact, it was so hard that he struggled with severe depression all of his life. Um, And you probably know one of the hymns he wrote, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And he didn't just write that hymn, he wrote a poem. And the poem is called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I'm just going to read a portion of that poem because it's just amazing. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. 
You see, we shouldn't look at 2020 and try to make it plain. <laughs> it's not that easy. And we shouldn't look at our circumstances to try to tell us who God is or what he's up to because he's always up to millions of things and every single detail of our lives, every single decision by ourselves or other people for good or for ill, he is working every single circumstance out for his purposes. And that, that's hard to believe sometimes, but that is simply the fact. And that's exactly what he was doing in Luke 2. He was moving in a mysterious way, so to speak. He was writing and compiling his own narrative. He was telling his own story. So, as you look at Luke 2, there's something interesting here that's happening. As God was superintending all of the events that were taking place, the Roman emperor issuing a decree, this couple who was moving from one seemingly insignificant Middle Eastern locale to another, having a baby, while all of this is going on, and using the social pressures as well, while all of that is going on, God is actually doing something even bigger. And I love it. We didn't plan this, but John actually read it as the scriptural reading. If you have your Bibles and you can find Micah, he's, he's hard to find sometimes, minor prophet. If you can't find him, don't worry. I have troubles too. But I'm going to read it again. <clears throat> uh, starting from verse 2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, or has, uh, I think the CSB says, Ephraim, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, for he shall be their peace. You see what Micah is saying? He's not just saying that, that God was simply superintending all the details of the lives of the people in Luke's account. God was actually bringing about words that he had Micah write down a prophecy 700 years before that, some 700 years, to give the precise birth date of Jesus Christ. He was bringing about his purposes. He was compiling his own narrative. He was being his own interpreter. He was making it plain. You see, Luke probably only arrived at this conclusion much later, probably while he was writing down these, these events. And the Holy Spirit helped him understand exactly what we just said. He was writing a narrative that was much bigger, the gospel narrative, the historical gospel narrative that gives color and meaning to all of our small little narratives, even in a year like 2020. And he was doing it in the most paradoxical of ways, the most mysterious of ways. Look back at Luke chapter 2 with me in verse 8. You can see that the first people that these angels show up to are shepherds. And if you remember what we just read in Micah, 
It says that Jesus, the, the Messiah, would shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And so it's interesting that Micah talks about this Messiah shepherding the flock in the strength of the Lord, and then the first people to, show, to hear about the gospel are shepherds. Now, you probably heard, and it is noteworthy, that shepherds are they're the lowest uh, rung in society. They were kind of stinky. They slept outside. Uh, they weren't well-liked. They were thought of as thieves a lot of times. Um, yeah, they were social, uh, ceremonially unclean. And while all of those things are noteworthy, I think there's actually something a little bit more going on here. And if you think about it, I think Luke, what he's drawing our attention to, or could be drawing our attention to, is the fact that all of the shepherds, all of the leaders, all of the kings, all of the priests in the Old Testament and Israel's history had failed to shepherd God's flock. If you look at Ezekiel 34, um, read it on, uh, you know, for your own account. Read it at home for yourself. I'll just give us a little paraphrase of the first section. Uh, it's extremely convicting and encouraging, the second half at least. Um, but it talks about the shepherds of Israel and how they failed to shepherd God's flock. And it says that that instead of feeding God's flock, they were actually getting fat and hoarding the, the, the food or God's word for themselves. Instead of healing the sick or taking care of the sick, they were inflicting further wounds. They were abusing God's people. Instead of shepherding God's flock and his love, they were exalting themselves and lording power and position over the people for their own sake. You see, what were they doing? They were essentially trying to garner their own security for their own selves. They were doing it on their own terms at the expense of God's people. And if you think about it, they're really not all that different than Caesar Augustus. They were trying to amass their own public acclaim at the expense of other people. They were seeking their security, and that security and that peace came at a cost. And if you think about it even further, we're not all that different either, are we? We all seek our security. We all seek peace in our life. We, we crave that peace, and we often do it on our own terms, almost always do it on our own terms and at the expense of other people. That brings us to our last point. Not only are we looking to examine the gospel data, not only are we looking to examine the conclusions that we arrive at based on or not based on that data, but we're also wanting to examine our peace. So what do, what do I mean by that? What does that look like? Well, just look at 2020. I don't think anybody would de describe the year 2020 as peaceful. Safe and secure are not the words we think of when we think about this year. We've had global pandemic, economic insecurity, social, political upheaval worldwide. Um, we've had murders on the rise, divorce on the rise, 
mental health issues on the rise. It's not been peaceful. It's been a lot like Genesis 1 verse 2. Um, chaotic, formless, void, dangerous. So the question is, what do we do in times like this? How do we respond? What's our security look like? What's our peace look like? And I think C.S. Lewis illustrates it perfectly. He said that if you open the cellar door slowly and the light spills into the dark, gloomy cellar floor, then the rats have time to kind of scurry away before you see them. But if you fling the cellar door open all of a sudden, then the light strikes these rats and they expose them and you'll see them scurrying away. Now, I think that 2020 has essentially done that to us. It has exposed our security. It's exposed what we put our security in. And what, what it's also exposed is that we're not all that different than the uh, shepherds of Israel or Caesar Augustus. We look for our peace, we look for our security on our own terms, and often at the expense of others. We try to control our circumstances. We try to control the people around us, and we get, try to get them to submit to and to deliver to us our own personal idea of peace and security. In a sense, we're all little Caesar Augustuses, or is it Augusti? I can never... Now, the culture around us might hear this and say, hold on just a second, I'm not that bad. And they come by that worldview, honestly, because they have been told that if you essentially, if each of us essentially looks out for his or her own self-interest, because mankind is essentially good by nature, then we will all bring about a mutually benefiting society. That's kind of what our modern culture believes. If we look out for number one, then we will make everything okay around us. But my question is, is have you looked at the data? If you look at human history, do you ever see that as the case? Has any society, has any individual ever looked for his own personal interest, being good by nature, and brought about mutual benefit for a whole community. Has that ever happened? You can almost hear Kevin in Home Alone say, I don't think so. But if we examine the data, I think that if we're really honest, we'll see that we really are a lot like Caesar Augustus. While we may not be a Roman emperor, or super rich, or super famous, or thought of as majestic or holy, we, while we can bring about some semblance of order and peace in our world, we end, do, we end up doing it for our own glory. We end up doing it, and, we, and when we do that, we end up making us the God of our own lives because we dictate how we get our peace and our security. And when we do that, what we're essentially doing at the end of the day is we are declaring war on God's glory. It is an affront on, his, on what he offers us as security and peace. We're essentially saying, hey, God, you're doing it wrong. Move over. I got this. So here's the real question. How can a holy God 
a righteous God. Look at people like us and who have declared war on him and affronted his glory. How can he give us peace and security when we've stolen from him, essentially? Well, look at what the army of angels says. They say, excuse me. They say, glory to God in the highest. And then they say, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. So what are they saying? Well, different from Caesar Augustus, who only brought about a, 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 a not enduring peace in his time and his world, God is proclaiming that there, w- there was one who came to bring enduring peace, one who was born of a virgin. And while we just saw that our tendency is to get peace and security on our own terms and at the expense of others, we see that God was doing something completely different. And what he was doing was he was bringing peace through his son. He essentially, the only way he could give us peace is by sending his son behind enemy lines. You see, the only way for him to give us peace is for the son to leave the ultimate peace, the ultimate security, so that he could give us security and peace, safety in him. Not only did he give up his security and safety, but he paid the price for our security and safety and peace. Real, lasting peace. But how? Well, he could only do that by sacrificing the one of whom he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The only way he could bring us peace is if he went to war against his own son instead of us. You see, Jesus paid the price for our peace, and he did it in a very mysterious way. You remember the shepherds who were tending the flock outside of Bethlehem? Well, they weren't just shepherding any old flock. They were shepherding the flock that would be used for the temple sacrifices. And I think what Luke is showing us, and therefore what God is showing us in his narrative, is that he was sending the good shepherd who would lay his life down for his own sheep to become the sacrificial lamb to be slaughtered for us so that we might have peace. And that's what happened 2,000 years ago. God the Son, the pre-existing God the Son, became a baby. He grew up and he did always what pleased his father. He never sought peace and security on his own terms. He always submitted to God's idea of peace and security. He always completely submitted to his father, and it cost him everything. Like the prophet Isaiah said, because it pleased the Lord to crush him, now we can be found pleasing in God's sight. So if that weren't enough, there's more to this story And that is what we should do with this now, that we have heard the gospel and the conclusions about it. What should we do with all of this? Well, I'd like to leave us with two things. I think what we should do is we should do what Mary did, and then we should do, as a consequence, what the shepherds did. Quickly, if you look at 
verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, it says that, essentially, before then, it says that the shepherds, upon hearing this from the uh, angels, they made a beeline to Bethlehem, and they went and told Mary and Joseph what happened. And it says in verses 18 and 19, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured these things up in her heart, pondering them in her heart. Now, the cool thing is, is that what Mary did was essentially what we've been doing this morning. She examined the gospel data, then she examined her conclusions, pondered them, wrestled with them, ruminated on them, until she treasured them in her heart. And that's what we should do today. We should take the gospel data, take the conclusions that we get from that gospel event, and treasure them in our hearts so much so that it warms our hearts and brings us peace. And that peace will be both intrapersonal, it will be within ourselves and our own minds and hearts, it will be a subjective peace that is based on the objective gospel, and it will be, as much as it is up to us, interpersonal with our community, and not just our church body, but also the, the community around us. And I would like to suggest this morning to conclude that if we do that, if we ruminate on the gospel, the gospel events, and, it, and we treasure it in our hearts so much so that it warms us and gives us intrapersonal and interpersonal peace, then we will naturally do what the shepherds did. We will make it known. We'll make it known to others. We'll make it known to our community. We will preach the gospel. We will proclaim the gospel in word and in deed, and it will be evident. And it will be evident because we won't have to go and get our peace and our security from our circumstances or from the other people around us on our own terms and at their expense. So I pray this morning that we would make it known as these shepherds did and that we would ponder these things in our hearts as Mary did and in making it known that we would join the triumph of the skies and with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for stepping into history in such intentional ways, for leaving us with an account that is factual, that we can go back to in history, for giving that data to us so that we can draw right conclusions about you, about ourselves, and about others, and that we can ruminate on those facts until we get peace true, lasting, enduring peace in our hearts and in our communities. And I pray, Lord, that when we do that, we would make your name known. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.